Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company. For a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, you can pick an experienced, licensed therapist you relate to and feel comfortable with. Each and every therapist has at least a master's degree and has completed over 3,000 hours of supervised work. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com forward slash boom. And to show your support for this podcast, use code boom to get $30 off your first month. That's boom. Talkspace.com slash boom. B-O-O-M. You are locked on Mavericks, your daily podcast on the Dallas Mavericks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is going to be huge. Welcome. You are locked on the Dallas Mavericks. My name is Nick Angstead, media member at MavsMoneyBall.com, and I am joined as always by my co-host, the editor of Smoking Cuban. What you got for me, Isaac? Nick, do you know that Brendan Haywood, the man, the the guy holding down the paint, he was really the guy for the Dallas Mavericks in this series. The man he behind be the man. Appearance on the all-time Dallas Maverick team on NBA 2K18. If a face palm was audible, everyone would hear it. Okay, so two quick notes. Jeez. One, you know... As far as which players are left off, you know, they have to have a contract with 2K and, yep. you know, to be on the game and all this stuff. So We've that's why, that's why, like, Barkley isn't on there, Reggie Miller. Yeah, yeah, some of these names like that. So you have to assume that others, you know, 2K is not stupid, you know, at least not all the time. I mean, they know some of these guys that should be on these teams. But here's if about it was the, NBA Live, we'd, we'd, be, we'd be like, no, no, this is them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> that's NBA Live stupid. But here's my thing. I could list like 10 other Mavs probably that I would take over Brendan Haywood. And you're going to tell me 10 of these other Mavericks, like they were not on the team, they all 10 declined. Yeah, right. Like how – there's no scenario in which Brendan Haywood should be on this team. Like people hating on Sean Bradley, just go ahead and shut off the pod. I mean, he come should, on. Like, he should at least be on the team. Yeah, I mean, yeah, not starting, but like a lot of people were – some people were quote-tweeting my thing today saying like he shouldn't be on the team. And I'm like, bro, like – he played nine seasons, and he's a franchise leader in blocks. Like, what? Anyway. But, yeah, Brendan Haywood, like, how – and it's not like a position thing. It's not that you had to have a center. But even if you did have to have a center, like Roy Tarpley, even Eric Dampier, but Sean I, Marion, Josh Howard. <laughs> uh, Jay Vincent, if you want to include all three of those Jays from the 80s. I went back and I looked at our notes. From, I looked at our notes from that, that pod – and we didn't even mention Brendan Haywood like at all. Well, I, there's no reason to mention. We didn't Brendan even Haywood. bring like, him up. Like I meant, I, no. I made sure to mention a bunch of guys, and I totally left out Roy Tarbley. That was one that I I said that I missed. But we didn't even. I didn't even write him. Like I had a list of 20 guys, and he wasn't even <laughs> top 20. And we only picked. Like, we only picked 12. They picked 14, 15. Yeah, we picked 12. But like at least Jim Jackson and Sam Perkins were maybes on my list right. when I initially made. I don't know. I don't think we talked about them. Maybe, but but Brendan Haywood was just an afterthought. Like that's just a joke. And I, I don't know. That just that blew me away that he was on that team. But yeah, Brad Davis wasn't on the team. Like you could have put Brad Davis. That's there. true too. I didn't think about that. I forgot about him on there. And. Berea, I mentioned him, but like as a as like at the very end of our pod, I mentioned him. I was like JJ Berea, you know, maybe we think about JJ Berea, but then we were like, we have so many point guards at this point. We had Harp, we had you know Nash and 
Kid. We had we both had Brad Davis on there. We had Jet as well. You know, it was just like there's too many guards on. We too many point guards. We just can't include all of them. And so we decided not to include JJ. And he gets included instead of Brad Davis. That to me doesn't make sense. Yeah, because that's a, sure. that's a one for one. You know, right? Like they're ex- the exact same position, and one of them deserves it. One of them does not. Do you think JJ Bray is going to get his number retired? There's a possibility. I could I could see it. it I mean, as long as he play, he keeps on playing for us, and I don't know, I, I could definitely see that in the future. But it depends. I don't know if Derek Harper doesn't have his number retired, then I don't see JJ at this point. JJ played. JJ just played a long time. Played eight this. seasons with the Mavericks. Yeah, Bradley played nine. So. <laughs> and we've talked about how you know JJ feels like he's been here forever. So does JJ get uh, eleven or si- or, or uh, five <laughs> retired? Yeah. Oh gosh, I don't know. Why do you do eleven? He, he probably Monte? won't. Monte? No. Monte? Monte. What do you say, Monte for? <laughs> Monte was eleven. Oh. I'm pretty sure. Oh. Monte what? wouldn't give up his number. Monte's got to have it all. <laughs> One thing Monte does not have yet is an NBA championship, and that's what we're talking about today. The Dallas Mavericks. We are continuing the 2011 Finals flashback. We are at Game Four. Dallas is down one to two games. And Isaac, this is the Dirk Fever game. We got the Michael Jordan flu game. We got the Willis Reed, you know, hobbling on one leg. We got Kirk Gibson with the home run. We got Dirk with his Fever game. Yeah, he said. You know, he, I guess he got to, uh, you know, his place the night before, and he said he felt he started feeling different, started feeling, you know, weird and stuff, and said it affecting the whole night really. And he came in the next day, and he knew just something was up. And they they quoted him, or they quoted his, Tyson or or Jet said that you know they came in, they looked at him, and said, "What's up with you?" <laughs> and they said, you know, they mentioned the flu, and whoever it was was like, no. Hey, no way. We can't have this this game. Not this game. Yeah. <laughs> of all the times, we can't have him at you know the, the flu at this point. But but that's when Tyson you know Tyson said, and this is one of the few like quotes I actually wrote down. You know, Tyson was quoted saying, "We can't allow Dirk being sick to cost him his ring." That's huge. And I love that quote, and that they took it upon himself themselves, not just as a team, but looking at Dirk. Him as a player, the team yep. did and said he was. He team. is that. He is this much of a legend that just because he's sick, we're gonna we're gonna go out there and do this for him. Like we can't let him, his sickness cost him that ring. Completely. And uh, right at the top of the broadcast, not even two minutes in, Mike Breen says, "No team in the finals history has come back down three one." And I just I had to laugh a little bit when I saw that because. Now it's not true <laughs> at yeah, all. But it, but at true. that point, it hadn't happened yet. And so if Miami takes that, you know, and goes up 3-1, then they go game five. And they're, uh, the, game five would have been in Dallas because they this at this point in, in NBA history, they still hadn't adopted. They're still doing the 2-3-2, two, two, which is two games in Miami, three games in Dallas, and two games in Miami. Now they do two game 2-2, two, two, one, 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 whatever, however, however long it takes. Yeah, and it's also that stat we mentioned on the last pod that no team, you know, when a series is tied 1-1, whoever wins game three has won the finals 11 times that it's happened, 100% of the time since 1985. So 
after Miami won game three, you know, the odds were in the Heat's favor. No one's ever came back and won, you know, won after a series been tied like that. So Dallas obviously broke that that stat wide open. But, yeah, obviously Dirk being sick, I mean, that was huge. And you saw it to start the game. I mean, he's, he started, what, he missed his first, like, 9 out of 10 shots or 10 out of 11 shots. Yeah, it's not good. He was 16 for 19 overall, uh, which is 32%. But he was 90% from the free throw line, 9 for 10, which is just Mm. so Dirk, you know. Yeah. Um, But in this game, you had the change in the starting lineup. You had J.J. Barea starting instead of Deshaun Stevenson, which uh, I talked about with Mark Followell, the TV play-by-play guy for the Mavericks. Uh, which will join us later in the in the program and uh, what I call this a program, the podcast. Uh, so the starting lineup was program. Kid, <laughs> Kid Berea, Marion, Dirk, and Tyson. And then for the start for the starters for the Heat, it was Mike Bibby, Wade, LeBron, Bosch, and and Bede's brother Joel Anthony. So and they they also replaced and that's another thing too. They were, they swip swap Brian Cardinal and Peja too in the in the second unit. Got Brian Cardinal and, early in this game. Yeah, they took they took Page's minutes, swapped him out with Cardinal, just a different type of feel. They needed a little bit more rebounding. Cardinal gave him just this little bit more toughness to him <laughs> to back one, up Dirk. One rebound. <laughs> two fouls, <laughs> no, he, two fouls though. There you go. I think we can admit though that he he fights and he's a little bit more scrappier of a guy than Page. He takes up more space. Yeah, so <laughs> that the JJ Deshaun switch was huge, but also the Cardinal to Page, even though he only played 7 minutes, it was a you know a good seven minutes. Yeah, and you need every single minute minute you can get in the finals, especially you know game by game. You need every single minute you can get from somebody because a minute can change it. You know, especially with this Miami Heat team where they take a minute, they can, and it's not as bad as the this you know 2017 Warriors team, but they could take a minute and they force three turnovers and all of a sudden you're down ten, <laughs> like just yeah. like that. You know, it was just so quick because they could just score so quickly in transition and get turnovers and. Uh, so before this series, Berea only started two games in the regular season. Wow! This is like starting Manu Ginobili for the Spurs, or like the uh, like the Warriors when they started Andre Iguodala. Like that's basically what this was, uh, and that's sometimes what it takes. You just need a different look just from the from the jump, and, uh, and they got it. And they started Kid on LeBron, and they started Marion on Wade, which I thought was interesting as well because. What do you do now? Because you put Stevenson out there to guard LeBron. Now, who do you put on LeBron? Well, they kept Marion on Wade, as they had been doing, and they put Kidd on LeBron. 37-year-old Jason Kidd was guarding And LeBron, it worked. Was guarding LeBron James. You know, and this is – I'm going to give Isaac some time later in this, later in this episode. You know, Be better. You know what? Let me just give it to you now. This was probably the worst game of LeBron's career, which is saying something – he had he eight, a lot. He had eight points, nine rebounds, seven assists, two steals. So it's not like, you know, he didn't show up at all. But can you wait? Can you tell me how many minutes he played? He played forty-five, almost forty-six minutes. Basically, forty-six minutes. Forty-six minutes. Yeah, in a finals there, game, there's only two points. there that he didn't play. <laughs> it was, wasn't an overtime the, game. Let's talk about the clutch, the fourth quarter. That we'll get to to where another tight, exciting fourth quarter. LeBron plays all 12 minutes of the fourth quarter. Do you know how many points he scored? Zero. Zero points, LeBron. 
in the fourth quarter and you play the whole fourth quarter. You know, it's just like I'm trying to like take my hat off, not hater LeBron hat. But when you talk about it's just like we've said it before. When you talk about holding these players, these great players, to this high standard that you have to hold them to, yep. that this that you can't ignore this series. Like you can't ignore this as this is some of y'all's goat. Like this is some of y'all's greatest of all time. Like and it, it's not just one game. Yeah, this is his worst game of the series. But this ain't just one game. This is a series on the biggest of stages and with help. <laughs> With two other top ten to twelve players in the league, not like just don't that we could go all day, but yeah, I mean, just a horrible performance by LeBron, and I mean he he deserved the criticism after this game that that, that people gave him and still give him to to this day. I mean, yeah, he's won his rings and he's proved himself and he's a top five player of all time, but this game was just horrific on his resume. Another telling thing that we mentioned in yesterday's podcast at halftime, it was uh, Miami was up by two. It was 47-45, and Bosch had 16 points at the half, and he did the interview with Doris Burke at halftime. So still no LeBron interview so far the entire series. Um, and Doris Burke gave the fever update at halftime. So nobody knew, and I even uh, – I think I mentioned this. I either mentioned it with Skin or Chuck Cooperstein. I can't remember, but – uh, that nobody knew about Dirk's fever. Like none of the media people, like nobody knew it until Doris Burke told everybody on the broadcast. It was that's, you know, the Mavericks just keep things under wraps and they weren't gonna, you know, let it out <laughs> so that you know Miami would know about it. Um, because if they play like Isaac Harris would play pickup basketball, then they would go at him. So <laughs> it's hard to go at. Well, I mean, you'd still go after him because he's sick, but. <laughs> he doesn't have like one spot in his body that you go at in a cheap way. But we had one of my favorite lineups of this whole series in this game. You're in the third quarter. Uh, they're tied at 61 with four minutes, 48 seconds left. You have Kid, Jet, Marion, Dirk, and Brian Cardinal, the custodian. <laughs> like, what a lineup that is. Just what are you <laughs> what are you doing with that lineup? But as soon as as soon as Brian Cardinal got in, he uh took a, a blocking foul by LeBron and just got leveled, just completely leveled. Uh, and they called a blocking foul, but it, and I think it definitely affected LeBron. Uh, and all that little stuff kind of affected him. Yeah. I mean, it, Cardinal does like this, just the scrappy stuff. And Deshaun, I think he still ended up, he came off the bench and still ended up with like 10 or 11 in the game. So it's not like they replaced Deshaun with JJ in the starting lineup. And yeah. then, you know, Deshaun was just, you know, logging zero minutes. He still logged like 25 minutes that night or whatever it was. Yeah, he had he had 25 minutes, and uh, he hit three really big threes too. Just really big crowd pumping up there. Mostly, I think all three of them were in that right corner, <laughs> hmm. which was kind of – they were like all in the same spot watching the highlights. And that speaks a lot to him too that, you know, you're getting benched. You're getting benched in the finals. You're still going to play a lot, but you're getting benched in the finals, and that his mindset still didn't change. Nope, like his, not at all. His just go-getter attitude, he hit the big shots like you just mentioned, and he was still like that same type of player off the bench, and that just shows a lot to who he is. Tyson Chandler was obviously huge in this game. Uh, he had the interview afterwards with Doris Burke, but he had 10 points and 10 rebounds. Uh 
late in the third quarter already. He had a double-double already, and five of those rebounds were offensive. He's just – this to me stood out as one of those games where he's just the biggest man on the floor and that nobody nobody could take a rebound away from him. And if he was – if they are going to, he was either going to get fouled, which means he was either going to get the call or he wasn't. And it, it seemed like it was almost 50-50 where he was going to get an actual call for a loose ball, you know, a loose ball foul or something like that. But uh, his rebounding was, the, was you know, completely the difference – and one of the other things that they brought up a lot on the broadcast was this change. And I talked about this with, uh, with Coop and Skin. The change about um, Tyson Chandler setting the pick and rolls, setting the picks in the pick and roll with, uh, with JJ or with Kidd or somebody instead of Dirk. And it, it sort of seemed like an obvious change, but it really changed the series a lot because, especially in this game, Dirk wasn't as mobile as he would have been normally because of the fever, because, you know, he's just been worn down and so putting Tyson there who you know Tyson's not much faster than a lot of people <laughs> you know like he's still a huge center I mean he's athletic but uh putting him in the big and roll made him you know gave him a lot more uh like quicker looks to me is what it's what it, I I saw and then Dirk was out on the perimeter and he was able to space the floor in that way making Dirk almost just like a spot-up shooter yeah I mean and it's just another brilliant thing that Carla did and he drew it up of saying, you know, he still, you know, realized, and even in his post game, you know, comments afterwards, like it's still dark. He's still seven feet, and you know, an all time legend. But you know, to take away some from him, you know, they they put him out some, and Tyson gives that rim presence that Dirk doesn't give, and that just added a different type of dynamic in guarding that pick and roll that. You know, if you run it with Dirk, you still have that that the defender guarding Tyson that is still going to stay home some. Right. It's still going right. to stay going to clog know, the paint uh, and just stick around because yeah. they're not going to follow Tyson out to 20, 30 feet. Exactly, and it, it was kind of a it's kind of a glimpse of kind of what the league is now with this stretch four, and oh, everybody can hit a three, and that's why we see the paint so open now. This is in turn why we get so happy about seeing Dennis Smith Jr. and mm. you know next next season of having these shooters all around and the paint opening up. But, but yeah, it was another just brilliant move by Rick Carlo. Miami had zero turnovers in the third quarter. And then in the first like seven minutes of the fourth, they had five. And so this was mm. just that they were, I mean, falling apart almost. It seemed like, uh, but let, let's walk you through the last minute or so of the game with uh, about a minute left. Dallas was up by two. Uh, Wade gets, you know, an outlet to LeBron or Wade get- well, I, gonna, I, I want to mention something real quick. The Heat were up by 11 in the fourth. Like, this was another Dallas comeback. Yeah. And that looked like, not that it was over, but it looked like it was on the brink of Wade caught this big oop over Brian Cardinal in the oh, fourth. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they were up by 11, and they're just like, dang it, in the fourth. And, like, <laughs> there's no, no, like, even though you're confident, they're like, another one, another comeback by Dallas. And then, you know, it gets into that last run that you're talking and about. And at that point in the game, you're thinking, like I just I wrote down, LeBron has been really quiet. And so when a player a star player like that is really quiet, it's and it's in the middle of the game, you're not thinking like, Oh, LeBron's choking, LeBron's choking. You're thinking like, Oh my gosh, when is LeBron gonna wake up? <laughs> when is LeBron gonna get involved? When is LeBron gonna you know, you think in, in that sense. And so at this point it was like, Man, they're up by 11. LeBron hasn't done anything yet, <laughs> which is, you know, like scary at that point. Uh, so the last last couple last minute of the game or so, 
Um, Wade gets an outlet pass from LeBron, and Kidd just has this super hard foul. Wade splits the free throws. Dirk gets a rebound. There is uh, 29 seconds left. And the Mavericks put out this lineup of Kidd, Jet, Deshaun, Dirk, and Tyson against Mario Chalmers, Wade, LeBron, Udonis Haslam, and Bosch. Uh, so these are just the last you know, 30 seconds or so of the game. Inbound to Dirk. He holds it. He backs down. Udonis has him on him. He crossovers with, without dribbling, which is what Dirk does, That kind of that rip-through move. No dribble, then layup. <laughs> Timeout Miami. Dallas is now up 84-81. And uh, same lineups go back out there. Wade gets the dunk. <laughs> Timeout Dallas. They just decided to go for the quick two points instead of trying to go for a three to tie it. Nine seconds left. Kid, Jet, Dirk, Deshaun. So no Tyson and Pages Stoyakovic. The first time he's going in the game, there's nine seconds left in the game. Jet hits two free throws. The Mavs are up three with uh, with six, just about seven seconds left. Uh, Carlisle puts Tyson back in the game, and uh, Spolstra puts in Miller instead of Udonis Haslam. So we have Mario Chalmers, Mike Miller, Wade, LeBron, Bosch, and then this play was insane to me. This this final play of the mm. game. Miller inbounds the ball. Wade misses the catch. He does the classic football receiver move where instead of catching the ball and securing the ball, he tries to make a move first, which there's a video out right now of of all the uh I think it's attention to I think it's called attention to detail about Dirk where you see Dirk does this where he before the ball gets to him, he starts his move. That way his, you know, his momentum has already started before he, you know, he doesn't catch the ball and and then go. You know, he kind of like goes and then catches the ball while he's going so that his momentum can already take him there and he catches people off guard a lot all the time. He did that on that um he did that on that final play with um with Bosch in, in game 2. No, 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 a different different play, but it's it's in that video. But hmm. Wade tried to do that where he tried to go first and he missed it and then it was going back into the backcourt. He missed it. He l- completely lays out like <laughs> Like Wade was perpendicular to the floor and just laid out to try to get it. He throws it back to to Mike Miller. Somehow gets it to Mike Miller. It was an incredible play. The way that he, you know, I guess obviously he missed it and then he had to get his own miss. But he gets it and then Mike Miller forces a terrible air ball at the buzzer and the Mavericks win eighty six to eighty three. And the Miami Heat scored. How many points did they score in the fourth quarter? Oh gosh, I know LeBron had at zero. They scored 14 points in the fourth quarter, and Dallas scored 21. Yeah, and Dallas went on like a 21-9 to run in the last 10 minutes of the game, and which is they nuts. They fell but. apart. And when you have a team that's based only on three guys, if one of them isn't going, then it's just going to unravel because look at the rest of the point totals. And, and, you know, there's other ways to impact the game besides points, but – so Wade and, and Wade had 32, Bosch had 24, LeBron only had eight. And then the rest of the guys, Miller had six, Rio had four, or had five, Joel had four, and Udonis Haslam had four. And that was it. That's all you're getting. You have to get something else. We talked about it yesterday with, you know, Jet or somebody giving somebody when the Mavericks lost. You got to get somebody else to get involved. This is even worse than, <laughs> than game three for the Mavericks for the Heat. So uh, it's a, the collapse game basically for the Heat. And this proved to be where the Mavericks picked up their momentum. Yeah, that, you know, it goes back to that Dirk shot on Haslam. And, you know, I thought it was ironic that, you know, to when Dirk held it. 
and you know they needed the basket. Derek held the ball, and it felt like he held it forever because <laughs> uh, he kept on yeah. looking at the clock. But you know, it was also kind of a sweet revenge too because Miami put Haslam on him again, which we just saw a game ago. Yeah, they tried Dirk, it again. Dirk missed the game winner over Haslam, so they're like, okay, we have a Dirk stopper. Okay, <laughs> and you know, yeah, because LeBron Dirk, stopper was a thing before that. The last couple of years, Kobe stopper had been a thing. You know, Jordan stopper. It's like, stop it. Yeah, no comment. No pun pun intended. <laughs> And, you know, it's just funny. It's funny that when you look at the two biggest shots, arguably the two biggest shots of the series, what for Dirk, we're like driving layups. Like, <laughs> right. For somebody, for somebody that's known, like, not known for his like speed so or somebody funny. that can take people off the dribble, you know, it's his left-hand layup in game two. <laughs> and now this game four when he just takes Haslam right off the dribble. I'm like, bro, like, how do you let Dirk take you off the dribble? And Ever. It's like he just knows. And, like, he shoots it over. And I don't – I forgot you might remember what Heat player came over with like two hands that tried to block it, but Dirk just he lays it up so high off the backboard. Was that in, in game two or this game? No, this tonight or yeah, game four. But anyway, you know they obviously didn't block it, but Dirk scored it, and you're just like, really? I mean, he's just he's sick, and it's just like it's almost automatic. He's like, all right, well, how am I going to score on you? Okay, let me walk back to the bench now. <laughs> there were, there is a. Two there's obviously there's two players that had a higher usage rate than than LeBron in this game that are obvious Wade and Bosch. There's another Miami Heat player that had a higher usage percentage than LeBron James. Can you guess who it is? Mike Miller. Mike Miller had a higher usage thirty <laughs> percent. Mike Miller, that's like wow. superstar level. There were four players on the Mavericks that had a higher usage percentage than LeBron James. Can you guess who those were? And usage percentage is basically how many possessions you use. So how many you're, you, you know, attempting a shot or you're, you know, using the, you know, the possession. Uh, JJ Kidd. Uh, Kidd was not one of them. Kidd was, Kidd was very yeah. low. Sean Marion. Marion. Marion, JJ. <laughs> no, Dirk and Jet. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's just, it's crazy that you are the MVP and there are seven guys on the floor that, or you know, have a higher usage percentage than you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, it also but shows I, that it wasn't just a bad shooting night for him. You know, it wasn't just that he didn't sh- like he just didn't shoot. No, there's no excuses for LeBron in this game or really series. But my emotions at the end of that of that game when they threw it into Wade. Like I just remember going nuts when they threw it in and it bounced off his knee. Yeah, I was like, "Yeah!" And then he passed it to Miller, and I was like, "No!" And then he shot it, and it was just like the split seconds of, "Holy crap!" And then you saw the air ball, and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" They really just beat them. Like this is a tied series. Yeah, because if they would have, if he would have hit that shot, it would have been tied. They would have gone to to overtime. But you still, you don't want to go to overtime with this this Heat team. No. Or or at all during the finals, you just want to you want to, want to clinch it. Well, after the game, our boy Deshaun Stevenson had a quote that went pretty viral. Viral for then, uh, LeBron checked out in the fourth quarter. Yeah, LeBron uh, he responded to this, didn't he? I think he did at some point, but or he he must have had to because I'm sure everybody asked him about it. And Deshaun, I talked to him about trash talking when we talked to him earlier in the week, and uh, he's. I mean, he's pretty good at it. People were saying you don't want to poke the bear and stuff like that, but it looked like it worked. 
Yeah, I mean, that's this is when he Deshaun got so many fans. Yeah, <laughs> was was during this and his defense on LeBron. But I wish I knew. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Here we go. All right, I have it Give for it to you. Me. He said we'll it, end with know, this. They told LeBron, you know, what Deshaun said about him him checking out. And LeBron says, yeah, Deshaun, he's been talking for a long time since our Washington-Cleveland days. I don't let that get to us. It's a three-game series. Talk is cheap. And, yeah, he said something about Deshaun later on. I don't know. He called him. No. (laughs) He called Deshaun called LeBron overrated three years before that. So they had a history, you know, between each other. (laughs) But, yeah, that was it. Nothing else. There you go. That was it. LeBron checked out in the fourth. The Mavericks win the game. Game four. Now let's talk to the. I introduce him. So let's talk to Mark Falwell. (laughs) Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best selling LED light bulbs. Our four pack of LED bulbs is $9.99. And our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details. Joining me now on the Locked On Mavericks podcast is the TV play-by-play voice, face of the Dallas Mavericks, Mark Follow. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Good to talk to you, Nick. All right, so going through this regular season in 2011 and throughout the playoffs, were you surprised the Mavericks were back in the finals? Um, That's a great question. I'm just kind of like reflecting on how I felt about it. And I guess, um, you know, anybody who was listening to some of the things that I was saying, either on the broadcast or the first round games we were able to do against Portland, and then a lot of the radio appearances that I was making on the ticket, uh, in Dallas after the fact, I, I felt like that there was just this kind of vibe about the team going into the playoffs that, you know, uh, it was Dirk and Kidd and Marion and Jason Terry and Tyson Chandler. And you had a lot of very, uh, and Peja too had gotten into the mix. You had yeah. a lot of very accomplished players, some of whom are Hall of Fame caliber. And I felt like that all of these guys had done all they needed to do as individuals in terms of accolades and money-making and and all that sort of thing to do in the game. And it was just a group of really talented individuals. Sean Marion, I don't want to leave out him in that mix, too, if somebody is a potential Hall of Famer. So you have, uh, you know, you you got, um, uh, you know, a group of individuals who had done a lot in the game. But hadn't won. And I just I felt like that whenever you get a group of guys like that who are veterans, who all they care about is winning a title, then I think when they get super dialed in, some really special things were possible. And that's kind of the vibe that I had going in. And then obviously that got tested with what transpired, especially in game four, the first round against Portland, the big Brandon Roy game and the and the huge blown lead. But uh, but once they got through that. And once they got through the first game or two against the Lakers, because I, I, I said that year I thought they were catching the Lakers at a great time because the Lakers had been to the 08 finals and lost and had been to the 2009 and 2010 finals and won. And all the extra games and the winning two titles and how hungry would people besides Kobe, I mean, Kobe always was going <laughs> to yeah. be a, an intense competitor, but how hungry would the other guys be 
and how much fatigue would three straight finals, you know, have, have played on them by the time they were getting around to the second round of 2011. So, so I just thought there were a lot of um, unique elements that were coming together. So to say I was surprised, that might be a bit of an overstatement. I felt like that they, they had just something kind of unique about them that year so um you know uh was i expecting it no i probably wasn't expecting it uh but but surprise might be too strong of a statement as well that they were back in the finals and of course keep in mind the other the other thing that started working in their favor once the playoffs unfolded was having the number one seed knocked out remember san antonio was bounced by memphis so that's another uh another part of the equation too there yeah, and we we went back and looked at some of the ESPN previews. You know, they had the they used to have those pages for each different matchup, and they had the you know the the experts weigh in and, and try to predict. And uh, throughout throughout, uh, everybody's picking against the Mavericks, especially in that Lakers series that you mentioned. Uh, every single ESPN person, even our own Tim, Tim McMahon and Mark Stein, picked against the Mavericks with the Lakers. So I just thought that that was you know amazing. Just looking back and seeing, you know, they were underdogs like they even in you know not even just in the in the finals but even before that too you know what was really interesting to me about the the lakers series too when i reflect on it is that uh you know out there in los angeles game one happened and the big comeback happened and you know they were down by 16 in the third quarter and came back and just were able to kind of grab it at the end with uh with the the foul on gasol that put i think kid on the line for free throws to put him in front and then there was the kobe shot at the end and um you know, the, it was really funny to listen to to read online, and especially to listen to sports talk radio the next day in LA, driving around. And I and and the whole theme of it was, well, look, these guys are going to be tougher than we obviously thought that they were. But now, really, all they've done is they've just poked the bear and they've awakened the Lakers, and now they have the Lakers' attention, and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And then, you know, game two rolls around. And the Mavs don't have to have a comeback of epic proportions to win that. They're able to just roll in there and really take it to them and and have the Lakers so off their game. If you'll remember, by the end of that game, Ron Artest had that shot to J.J. up in the face that caused him to get suspended for the next game. So it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was really weird uh, how that whole Lakers series unfolded. I mean, even if you, like I did, felt good about their chances because of the Lakers and the hunger factor and the fatigue of three straight finals of, of that, even even in my most uh, optimistic of scenarios, thinking that that thing could end up as a sweep was never something that I gave one second of consideration to going into it. Well, if you were surprised that L.A. radio and L.A. sports talk thought that the Lakers were better than they actually were, I, I think I might be surprised that you thought that. <laughs> they, they always seem to be you know, not overestimating, but just pumping up the team a little bit more than, than they probably should. <laughs> Yeah, they were. Uh, there was a lot of pumping up going on on Sports Talk Radio in the aftermath of Game One, and uh, you know, a- as we know, obviously it didn't turn out uh, for them, and it worked out great for the Mavs. But it was uh, it was a unique time and a unique experience to be living uh, all of that in the way that I was and hearing hearing you know the analysis of the series as it was unfolding in real time for sure. When you were prepping for the finals, so you had you had also done the 2006 finals as well, so this wasn't your first. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, I didn't really do anything in the 2011 finals. I mean, our, you know, Coop did the radio broadcast and our television broadcast, you know, the, the, you know, when I first started with the Mavs uh, doing radio in 2001, you know, there was still a time right around then when it was possible for local TV to get to do a game or two of the conference finals. And then 
right around the time I started with the Mavs is when it got cut back to where well, you can do the first round and you can do a couple of games in the second round, but that's it. And then we reached this place. Gosh, I'm trying to remember when it was. I think it was 2000. It was whenever the new TV contract before this last one kicked in. So I think it was 2008 or 2009. Then they took away even doing any second round games for us. And so it was all just first round. So so we did every game of the Portland series. And then, uh, you know, our our TV broadcast signed off. And at that point, um, I, I was just there to to, you know, to do things for Mavs.com. Uh, to do things for Fox Sports Southwest. Because remember that even though Fox Sports Southwest couldn't do the games, we did a lot of shoulder programming, pre-game, post-game. Right. Uh, was contributing a lot to what was going on on Sports Radio 1310, the ticket. So, so you know, that uh, for me, the prep wasn't uh, as extensive as I would do getting into, you know, a lot of the things that I would get into if I were getting ready to actually do a broadcast. So, you know, I was getting ready for it, but uh, getting ready for it and consuming it all in a different way going into the finals than I would have typically. Yeah, you're like almost a fan at that point. <laughs> like you've been following this yeah. team, you're with the team, you're, you know, it's not nece- it's not necessarily 100% your, you know, your job at that point to be objective and to, you know, to, you know, uh, to, you know, call it, call it like you see it, you know, you're, you're, you're behind the team at that point. Do you think sure. that, do you think that the local yeah, broadcasters yeah. should be able to do more playoff games and, you know, finals games and things or keep the national guys? Uh, well, obviously the, my biased answer to that is I would love if we got to do the games. <laughs> I mean, that would be great. I mean, I, I understand it. Um, you know, one of the things, and then this is, this is the case for every team. One of the things that you hear every year, um, you know, is that that there are a group of fans of the local team who would then miss the local broadcast whenever it gets to that stage. And, and you know, some of it is, I think, that, that one of the things that I've learned over the years of broadcasting and getting to do some college football games and some MLS games where you're doing a, a network broadcast and you're not for or against either team, as we do in, like, you know, when you're doing a local team broadcast, one of the things that happens is that when you – aren't constantly uh, praising uh, the Mavs, for example, or a team, and you're giving credit to the other team, then some fans, I think, perceive that uh, you're rooting for the other side or you want the other side to win or something like that. And so, you know, so whenever uh, Jeff Van Gundy or Mark Jackson wasn't like just showering constant praise on Dirk or Sean Marion or whomever, then the perception is, oh, well, these guys don't want the Mavs to win. And I don't think that's the case. I mean, nobody... I mean, I know all these guys who do these games and nobody, none of us, when you're wearing that hat is rooting for uh, a, one team or the other. We just want good, competitive, entertaining games where we get to do our best work and, and get to really, you know, be in a position to to bring a quality product to the viewer. So to answer your question, well, of course, I would love it if we got to do those games. And I think that there's a segment of the fans that would also like it, you know, some, some fans want to hear the, uh, the other perspective and the less biased perspective. And some fans want to hear the very biased perspective. So, so there would certainly be a market for it. There would certainly be uh, people watching it. I understand though, why we don't get to do it and it's not going to change. So, you know, I, I guess there's, there's not much point in me uh, pining for something that's never happened. Well, I will continue to do so because I just think that, you know, in the, the era of on demand and the era of we get to choose our own adventure, you know, with social media and getting to, you know, pick what stream we watch and different things like that. I think that I think that eventually we'll we'll get to a point where we have I can choose, you know, either th- for the playoffs or for whatever. I can choose the, the Mavericks broadcast. I can choose the Heat broadcast. I can choose the national broadcast. I can choose the Spanish broadcast. You know, like I can choose 
any of those at some point. So I think you, it, you it'll know, eventually get there. And, and one thing real quick, you know, one one way that teams are getting around that a little bit is that I know that particular year in the case of Miami, their TV voice, Eric Reed, uh, has been. And I think he does this not just that year. I think he's done this other times as well. He's been their TV voice since the, the, the franchise started in the late 80s. And they were actually doing a TV broadcast, not for anybody's purposes, but just for purposes. So on promotional materials oh, wow. going forward, you know, you would have the local announcers broadcast and the voice that everybody's familiar with calling, you know, uh, the big plays or the championship. And they were just doing a, a something that they would record to be able to use in highlight videos and such. Another thing is that I know the guys in Cleveland have done this. What they will do is they'll do a, a watch party when the team is on the road oh, yeah. and when, when the team, when the team is on a road game, they'll do an in arena watch party and the Mavericks did this, but they just didn't do this one other wrinkle to it. So there'll be in Cleveland in the finals in the past couple of years, uh, there's an in arena watch party when the team is on the road. And what they are doing is having the local broadcast crew call the game while everybody's watching it on the big video board at, you know, up there at the queue. Wow. Uh, so imagine if you were doing it where it was the Mavericks and everybody come, is coming to American Airlines Center to watch the game. And me and Derek and Skin are calling it off the TV. And that sound is pumped in for all the fans who are there at the watch party getting to watch it. So that's one way that uh, that local that teams are are using and implementing their local broadcasters to do something that, uh, you know, the diehard fans of the team would want to consume. So that's, uh, you know, that's one interesting little twist on the way people are doing it. But obviously, you know, it's not it's not a broadcast. It's, uh, you know, for a for a for a limited audience and it's not anything that can be put out in terms of uh, a terrestrial bra. Interesting. Yeah. It makes it more just like a, you know, live experience for the, you know, for the fans that are there. Uh, Skin told us this interesting story that, sure. uh, that you were involved in and uh, it was his first time on the broadcast. He kind of didn't know. He said he didn't really know what he was going to be doing. He kind of showed up and was like, I know I'm on the broadcast. Like, not really if I'm doing a bit, if I'm doing a sideline. He's like, I'm not really sure what I'm doing. And he said he got on the first time he started talking. He just was going a mile a minute and just you know talking so fast. And you just wrote down on a sheet of paper, like slow down and showed it to him. What was, uh, what was Skin like when he first got on the broadcast? Oh, I mean – you know, that's a that's a that's a great question. It's a really interesting story because he came in in the middle of the year and it was an odd dynamic at the time. Uh, you know, and I think that he his his story about it is accurate. And I very, you know, remember the whole vibe of, you know, I've been asked to do this, but it's not I'm not understanding what exactly it is that they want me to do. And I don't want to, you know, get in Bob's way. And so, yeah, it was. It was it was certainly a very unique situation, and to his credit, you know, and to everybody's credit, I mean, to, to producers and talent, and you know, that's just that's a really that's a really different thing to do to try to work another voice in and that sort of way in the middle of the season, and you're not exactly sure what the best way is to do it, but you know, that's that's what what people, the powers that be want to do. And, and you try to make it work and you try to make it uh, turn out the best that you can. So, so I thought that, uh, you know, once he sort of found his voice, which we all have to do when you're in a broadcasting situation like that, I thought he, he hit the ground running. And I mean, 
you know, eight years into this now, I couldn't be any happier that, uh, you know, that we have worked him in and the way that we have and get to use him and implement him. But, uh, you know, like anybody, I mean, I think that that he had, uh, you know, we all had our growing pains getting it, you know, making it work and workshopping it, you know, on the job training, if you will. Uh, but but everybody did a great job to, to make it work. And I'm super happy with how it's turned out. Definitely, uh, it's been it's been awesome to see that as a, as a three man pod. The uh, the starters, I don't know if you ever watched them on NBA TV, but they have this game that they play on one of their podcasts called Say What, and they they read out different uh, they read out basically as like a, they script it and uh, they read out different things that you guys said on the broadcast, and then they do two real ones and one fake one, and you got to try to figure out which ones are the real one. And, and yeah. yours and skins and, and harps have been on there a couple times, and you're just like. How do they bring up stuff like that in a game? But it's just it's hilarious. It's the stuff that gets <laughs> the stuff that gets. Well, I love up. the starter show. No, the starters have a great show. I love what they do, yeah. and I, I really do think that that's one of the unique things that you know. You know, this would never work if if Skin didn't have the basketball savvy that he's got, and because he does, you know, as you know, his dad was a coach, and you know, he's been around the game his whole life, and has been around the Mavs a lot his whole life, and has a unique. Uh, ability to get to know the guys and to bring something to the table from talking to them. And then you couple that with the zany sense of humor and the willingness to, you know, to push the envelope and to say some things that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear from a traditional broadcast. So, you know, the, the, the knowledge of basketball that he has and the depth of, of knowledge about it and about the Mavs organization specifically, then that really makes the oddball humorous statements work and you know it, it's it's a it's a fantastic fit uh he brings a really unique perspective in terms of how he analyzes and looks at the game and then he brings the perspective of humor that a guy like me i mean you know i'm the i'm the straight guy and and I, i'm sure, certainly enjoy cutting up and having fun but i'm never gonna i'm not gonna make a living telling jokes that's that's uh that's not gonna ever work for me. <laughs> there's never you know, gonna so be a mark st- mark follow stand-up special yeah, <laughs> it's never going to happen. So, so I love having somebody there who is out there to to you know who who thinks of things in a different perspective and thinks of things from a unique humor perspective and is able to interject that and pull it off. You know, it's great. All right. So from one Wade to another, Dwayne Wade in the beginning of this series was just incredible. Going back and watching these games. Uh, he was just hitting shots that, that I didn't even remember he could hit. <laughs> he just going, you know, dribbling behind yeah. the back, going through Dirk and Tyson and off the backboard and just these crazy shots. And it seemed like as the series went through, they ran out of luck almost in those shots. Uh, was that more just, you think, the Mavs defense? Or do you think that, you know, Wade and LeBron were just having to do so much for this team because the role players were not good at this point on the team? Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of all of the above. I mean, I think as the series went along, and clearly Wade getting hurt and missing a big chunk of Game 5. Remember when yeah. he had the collision with Brian Cardinal and, and that hurt his hip, and he uh, you know, he missed a pretty significant portion of the first half. Uh, you know, and who knows how the game might have turned out differently had he uh, not missed a significant amount of time. Uh, so, you know, I think that uh, the physical nature of what happened late in the series probably took a toll on him. Uh, the workload, you know, the fact that LeBron was a little bit more tentative as a player and wasn't at the stage of his career where he was, um, you know, always taking over the biggest games and the biggest moments, especially there because he was with a new team and it was their first time in the playoffs together. And, 
And there was all of that. And yeah, I, and and remember how much they had to change their role players because once you got past uh, Wade, LeBron, and Bosch, yeah. you're rolling out uh, what? Yeah, jo- Joel Mike Anthony, Bibby. Udonis Haslam, yeah. Eddie House, Udonis Haslam, Mario uh, Chalmers. Yeah, yeah, they just uh, they weren't getting a whole lot out of anybody else other than the big three. And so, yeah, I think I think that probably was certainly an aspect of it. Whereas the Mavs, by the way, uh, were playing as a team. And and not only was it Dirk and Jason Terry, but you know Tyson is making big plays and Marion is making big plays. And then you can even go on down farther than the list. And because of injury and, you know, Peja couldn't really play much in that series. And then Brendan Haywood got hurt. So you have Mahimi hitting the shot that he did at the end of the third quarter of game six. And you've got Cardinal uh, hitting key shots and making, uh, you know, the kind of plays that he would make. You basically had your fourth string power forward and third string center. <laughs> yeah. Basically, players, I guess you would call them at, 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 at going into the series when you consider that Bobois was hurt and Dominique Jones was not going to play. So you had a, what, a 15 man roster and players. Uh, 14 and 15 obviously aren't a factor. And so you're looking at players 12 and 13, I think, what, on what your depth chart would be going into that series. Yeah, talking Kar- about Karan Butler Carter. out as well. Oh, yeah, Karan Butler. That's exactly right. God, thanks for, thank you for reminding me of that. So, yeah, you had uh, yeah players 11 and 12 on your depth chart. Those are the guys that, uh, you know, are able to step up and make plays as that series went on. So it was – you know, a number of factors all really came to came together and, and made that such a magical run for them in the finals. Yeah, they really missed Karan Butler a couple times. The, just the wing depth was not there to go against, you know, LeBron and Wade the entire time. So they, they really could have used him. But obviously, <laughs> you know, you have you have that injury, but then you also have, like you said, the Wade injury. So it, it, it offsets and the Mavericks are able to pull it out. The tendon you know, and another thing, right. too, another, I'm sorry, Nick, another interesting adjustment, too, that we'll all have to remember is that uh, starting J.J. and yeah. how important that was. And then that allows you to bring Deshaun Stevenson off the bench and you have more you know, you have that, uh, you know, he can hit some threes off the bench, as he did quite a bit, remember, in the first half of game six. Uh, you know, he's there to to provide defensive grit. And then Berea, you know, uh, really improved what they were able to do as a group in the starting lineup because that gave you another ball handler and playmaker and floor spacer uh, that was out there along with Jason Kidd in the backcourt. So that was, you know, a really important adjustment and a – and a significant yeah. moment where a role player's contribution is under the magnifying glass, and J.J. obviously delivered. Yeah, every time J.J. goes on the floor, it just seems like the offense just starts moving. It, it seems like, you know, there's a bunch of gears going at once, and when, you know, when J.J.'s not really on the floor, the gears, they, they can turn. Like, there's certain ways that they will turn, but as soon as he gets on, it's like he's oil just to those gears, and they just start moving and turning. It's still, it's still sort of the same today. I mean, even this past season, we see him get on the floor, and you're like, oh, my gosh, things are happening. <laughs> you know, like, you know, all of a sudden, the off- think, offense starts moving. I, I think a lot of that is probably years in the system and years of playing with Dirk. I mean, let's face it, J.J.'s career, you know, a lot of the success he's had in his career is because he's a very smart pick-and-roll guard, yeah. and he's learned what to do to exploit the spaces that is created when he's out there on the floor with Dirk. So I think, you know, that's that's a lot of when you look back at that series and and even when you now look at yeah the state of the Mavs as it existed this past year that when he's out on the floor with Dirk he just knows how to play off of him and take advantage of the space that's created because of the attention that Dirk draws 
Yeah, completely. You mentioned the tentativeness of LeBron. Uh, both Dirk and LeBron at this point in their career in 2011 had lost in the finals. LeBron had obviously lost, you know, got swept by San Antonio in that series. Dirk had gotten beat by the Heat before, obviously in 06. Uh, but why was Dirk able to rise up in that in those fourth quarters, but LeBron just almost did the complete opposite of that with that tentativeness you said? Well, I think that at that point, Dirk had fully matured as a player. And it gets back to the thing that I was talking about at the very beginning of our interview is that what made the 2011 Mavs so special is that you had a group of individuals who were just so committed to the team game and dialed in and their level of focus and attention to detail was was, you know, at the highest possible level. And I think probably somebody listening might now might right right now might be saying that, well, don't you think that's the case any anytime that a team is in the finals? Don't you think that concentration and attention to detail and focus is at the highest level? And I, I think that, that, yeah, I mean, obviously you would think it's at a very high level, but I guess, guess you know, my thought on it is, is that when these games are decided by one or two possessions in the final minute of the game, typically yeah. – you know, when the margin is that close, then these imperceptible levels of I'm, you know, focused and paying attention to detail at 100 percent efficiency level as opposed to what I think is 100 percent, but really is 95 percent. But but to the naked eye and to the to the fan, that's not necessarily a perceptible difference. I think that, you know, to me is something that can make a difference in these games with a margin is razor thin and so i I just and and it's obviously something i can never prove it's just this vibe that i experienced being around it i think that there was a a commitment to one another and to the team structure and to the game plan and to the detail and the focus uh from dirk all the way on down and just this desire to understand after so many disappointments what it took to be successful and these situations at the highest level and what that one extra thing was that you could summon, uh, you know, from your mind and your spirit and your body that would allow you to, to make the play where the other guy can't. And maybe there's just maybe you, uh, you know, sometimes God given talent is going to is going to allow that to come to the forefront. And sometimes uh, experiencing the negative uh, is going to help you be in a position where when you experience that later in a, your career that you can you can block out the noise and put your mind and 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 your focus where it needs to be. And so I think Dirk having experienced the failures to that stage of his career whereas LeBron had had a lot of individual success and a lot of accolades and a lot of team success, but I guess you know there there was a level of adversity I think all of those guys on the Mavs had been through either with the Mavs or somewhere else in their career and just uh, years and years of experience relative to LeBron who hadn't maybe been through the adversity, uh, you know, because I think up till that point in his career, I mean, he was so highly thought of and, you know, there were never any negative vibes about LeBron until he made the decision about leaving Cleveland to go to Miami and that, you know, the, the decision and all of that. So, so maybe LeBron just didn't have the, the disappointments to, to draw on yet to know how to find that imperceptible little 5% difference of max of, of operating at the maximum efficiency level 
where he's able to do the things he needs to do when the game is on the line. I mean, remember in game six, I mean, he's got like JJ switched onto him one time <laughs> yeah. in a possession down on the block. I mean, remember in the third was in the third quarter, wasn't it? And, you know, he's passing the ball out when Berea has been switched and is trying to guard him on a post up. And it's like, dude, what in the hell is that? <laughs> and that to me is just kind of an example. Of, yeah. That's, that's the examples I'm, I'm, I'm getting at when I say that there was a tentativeness and an unsureness about LeBron's game that, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, he's in a much, much different place in his career now with the success that he's had. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it almost seemed like Dirk's thing is attention to detail and being a tactician and, you know, doing the exact motions. And, you know, when he trains with Holger, it's like the exact motion, like the exact position of his hands, the exact position of his feet, you know, turning the, you know, the shoulder, go, you know, doing a turnaround. He needs to have it just the right place. And when he had that finger injury, he needed to find the exact splint so that he could still feel the ball because it's just that, you know, attention to detail. And it didn't seem at that point in LeBron's career that he had gotten to that level yet. And I feel like he is kind of that way now. Um, or at yeah. least has grown more into that. And I think that's just kind of how, you know, star players grow. You know, they have so much God-given ability at the beginning of their career, most of them, that you don't need to be <laughs> so attention to detail. You can just jam on somebody or you can just, you know, rise up and hit a three because your legs are still good in the fourth quarter. But when you get to a certain point like Dirk had been and like Dirk is, you know, still now, the attention to detail just becomes even more important. I would I would agree with all of what you're saying, and I think uh, you know, look to to be great in this game, uh, you know, one of the things, and this is an individual or it's for a team. One of the things that Bob used to always say is that you have to develop a resistance to the boredom of doing something over and over and over again, and repetition. Yeah. Uh, you know, and muscle memory and going things over and over and over to the point that they're so secondhand. That's just a really, really important aspect of the game. And and yeah, when when you're when you're so much better than everybody else as an individual, there there's a point in time in your career when you can when you can ride on that to be successful on a lot of occasions. But when you get against the game is being played at the highest level, yeah, there's these just these little things. That can be, like I said, that can make the difference. Uh, games are being decided by one or two possessions in the final minute of the game, and and just like I said, there's no there's no mathematical way for me to be able to prove this. It's just just you know years of watching the game and and being around up close and personal that particular situation that year that I feel the way that I feel about you know about this and this theory in general, this thought process in general, but specifically as it applies to what happened in 2011 with the Mavs in Miami couple more questions for you. This is a question I've asked every single person so far um, with some interesting results. A lot of people have said that this is the last honest championship, that now we have these super teams, you have the Warriors, you have the Heat that you know the Mavs obviously beat. Um, what would you say to people that say this is the last honest championship? Um, I'm thinking about how I would, how I would address that. I, I, I have heard people talk about that. I guess no one's ever really asked me, so I haven't like kind of fleshed out all of my feelings about it. And I don't know that I would agree that I would say it's the last honest championship. I, I don't think I would say that. It certainly was very unique, and it's not the blueprint that now we have come to be accustomed to and have gotten used to seeing. But I think that winning a championship is still a very, very hard thing to do uh, in any sport, 
uh, the NBA obviously, you know, provides its its unique challenges to what you have to do to be able to compete and ultimately win a championship. So I just think that uh, it's so hard and so many unforeseen things can still even trip up the best of teams. Um, you know, and, and, and by the way, I mean, let's not forget that San Antonio got into yeah. the mix there, too. Remember, in 2014 and, you know, they weren't. Uh, they weren't a team that was put together with uh, a bunch of free agents deciding we want to play with one another. I mean, that was a team that was done on the drafting of Duncan and the drafting of Parker and Ginobili. And then you had Kawhi Leonard in the draft to, to infuse some young talent into it as those guys were all getting long in the tooth. So, so number one, I guess, as we kind of flesh this all out and, and think out loud about it, I, I would say San Antonio's championship also has to be given uh, certainly a different level of consideration than how we might look at the Miami and Cleveland and Golden State championships. And also, I just it's it's really hard to win. And there are yeah. still so many things that can get in your way. I mean, you just you never know over the course of a long season or or over the course of a finals what's lying around the corner. And, and you know, remember Golden State's first championship, Steph did not play very well. And I think the the bright lights of having to be in that position for the first time, I think that was a lot harder on him than we realize. And it took uh, their own sort of tactical move of putting Andre Iguodala into the starting lineup and and his experience and his longer amount of time in the game, uh, you know, allowed him to to be able to you know put his best foot forward there and be vital to what Golden State did in winning the last three games of that series. But then you fast forward to the next year and when it looked like it was just a march to an inevitable coronation and then the Draymond Green thing happens and then look at what that did in terms of you know forever altering the course of history in that particular series so there's still even with the super teams being put together uh there's still so many unknowns that can happen it's like yesterday I was on the ticket in Dallas and talking to the guys about the the Boston Cleveland trade and one of the questions was does this really materially change things for those teams though in terms of closing the gap with Golden State and I said, well, you know, maybe it doesn't. But to me, it's like I don't think that's a question that you spend a lot of time debating right now because the the idea is you have to get there. And that's that's what matters. And then when you get there, you never know what's going to happen when yeah. there's going to be a Draymond Green kind of incident or Durant's going to fall down in the first game and fall on his arm and break his arm. I mean, I don't hope that happens, but I don't want that to happen. But you just never know uh, what's going to transpire. So you got to get there. And, you know, it's uh, still a really, really tough thing to, to win it when you get there because there are just un, unknown hidden pratfalls that, that uh, you never know when fate's going to intervene. So, so that, I guess, is the long answer to what I would say to somebody who feels like that the Mavericks 2011, as much as we love it and as much as it's great to look yeah. back at it and mythologize it, if you will, uh, you know, I, I would, out of respect for other teams and what it takes to succeed at the highest level. I wouldn't want to do anything that came remotely close to sounding like it's discounting anybody else's path to a championship because it's hard for whoever gets there and however you do it. It's, it's an extremely difficult challenge and, and, you know, is incredibly rewarding whenever you get there. Completely. And I, I would disagree with people that say it's the last honest one too, because even that first warriors, team was not the you know assembled free agency bought all these players you know like <laughs> brought together the super friends they most of those guys had been drafted you know steph had been drafted yeah, draymond had been absolutely drafted. i mean clay had been drafted yeah yeah, yeah exactly clay, i mean clay had been there drafted. are only 
yeah, uh, Bogut had been dra- uh, or had been traded for four years earlier, and and Iguodala was a free agent signing three years earlier. So yeah, I I, I don't think yeah I, I I would I would agree that yeah that uh, that would be an unfair assessment of that first Golden State championship for sure. What somebody who had completely disagreed with us though is Deshaun Stevenson. We t- I talked to him at the beginning of this week, and he was he was all for it. He said yes, it completely. <laughs> He's like it completely was. <laughs> just well, it. look, I mean, I think if you were him and you were part of it, I mean, yeah. it was special and it was unique. So, so you know, I, 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 like I just said in the last answer, I mean, we should always look back at that and and say it for what it was, which was that's not necessarily you know one star. And a lot of role players, some of whom who used to be stars and all-star caliber players, but were later in their careers. Uh, that is not the typical blueprint. It happened with the Rockets in the 90s with Olajuwon and the players around him in the first championship. But heck, even remember the second title was adding Clyde and Clyde was still an all-star caliber player. Drexler, that is, at that yeah. point in his career. So so it's, um, you know, it's it was it was certainly a very unique title. And if you were a part of it as a Maverick player like Deshaun was and knew all of what this, the disappointments that got that team there and then what all of it went into it and the, the people that doubted you, heck yes, man. I mean, you would, yeah. you would hold that in such regard because it was unique and it was special and memorable and worthy of certainly um, – certainly being reflected upon in history because of its unique nature and because of its very, uh, you know, special nature where it was truly a, a group of guys that had been together. I mean, most everybody, that core, that team had been together for, you know, in the case of Dirk and Jet, they'd been teammates for eight years together and kid had been on the team. I think that was his fourth season. And, you know, Marion was on the team for a couple of years and Deshaun had been on the team. I think that was his third season uh, or maybe it was his second season. I don't remember, but but it was yeah, it was a pretty unique group of guys and, and pretty amazing uh, path that they had to go to get there. So I don't blame Deshaun one bit for for, <laughs> uh, you know, reflecting on it in the way that he reflects on it, because it was a very, very hard fought and earned championship in a way that a lot of people, uh, you know, don't don't see the template now. Oh, completely. No, I completely agree with him. Uh, Deshaun also told me he remembers nothing from the party after game six. Do you remember anything about Deshaun in the party after game six? You know what? I didn't see him. Uh, Neither did he. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, My game six experience was uh, after the locker room, uh, I got on the bus and the bus took us back to the Four Seasons Hotel where we were staying at in uh, Miami. And there was the hotel was not on South Beach. It was in the the financial district area, the Brickell Avenue area, if you will, of Miami, which is a lot, like I said, a lot of the financial district area. And we went back to the hotel and there were a bunch of Maverick season ticket holders and fans that were there and people that worked for the team that were hanging out there. So I spent time probably, I mean, that game was what, eight o'clock Eastern. So by the time I got back to the hotel, it was probably close to midnight. And I spent probably about an hour and a half there. And then, you know, me and a group of people were texting some others who were at uh, at live at the Fountain Blue Hotel there in Miami. And then we ended up at that party where Cuban had the eighty thousand dollar bottle of champagne and (laughs) 
Dirk was there and and others. But no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't see I, I, if Deshaun was at that. Uh, I don't remember seeing him there, and, and you know, I, I don't think that uh, my recollection of it was that he wasn't there. That he was at another party that was going on at some other locale or maybe he was just at another table in that particular location and i never made it to that table so or just in another uh, universe just, just, yeah. who knows man just and good for out him. There. Yeah. yeah no he definitely had a fun time i asked about the week and he was like i don't remember much about the week either but uh last question for you what's the craziest thing you saw at an after party um an eighty thousand dollar bottle of champagne <laughs> yeah. probably would yeah I, I think that would have to uh, the uh, the the size of it and the fact that it was just going around person to person and drinking out of it, uh, yeah, that's to me that was the probably the and I don't, I don't know I guess maybe that I mean in the grand scheme of things that's not that crazy but but to me that's uh, you know that's that's kind of what my recollection was and the fact that uh, you know dumb little old Followell could walk right up to live and say. You know, I'm with the Mavs and I'm going to Mark Cuban's table. And the fact that, you know, they couldn't open, pull the ropes back fast enough for silly little old me to let me in at that point. I didn't have like some sort of like massive, difficult hurdle to get through to be able to get into the club uh, where that party was happening. So that's, uh, you know, pretty, pretty unique experience for a guy like me. So I guess, uh, you know, having uh, having the ability to, to not have to, you know, go through a lot of rigmarole to talk your way into a situation like that. That probably was a pretty, pretty interesting thing that I saw and experienced in the aftermath. And I'm assuming pretty memorable. Mark, thanks so much for joining us, talking to us about 2011 finals on our 2011 finals flashback for locked on Mavs. And we hope to hear from you again during the season. Yes, sir. Call anytime, Nick, we'll do it. And, uh, we're, uh, we're less than two months away, uh, from, from regular season basketball. So it's an exciting time for sure. We're getting there. Is, is Nerlens Noel going to be signed by then? <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, I, I guess uh, I, 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 l- let me put it to you this way. I don't think that you need to be, be like refreshing Twitter for the next few days or even a couple of weeks for any sort of news. I, I would suspect that we're going to have to get a lot closer to the qualifying offer deadline, which is October the 1st when he has to decide whether or not he's going to take the qualifying offer or that then right. becomes not an option. I would think that a deadline where something – some sort of significant decision has to be made. That to me is what will will spur action in terms of a resolution of it. So I, I don't think we're we're going to get to uh, to a resolution until we get a whole lot closer and have that uh, have that deadline and have that up against everybody to kind of force their hand in terms of you know how serious and how intense of the negotiations going to get. So that would be that would be the only bit of advice I think I could really uh, you know confidently offer at this point. Mark, you're making me sad. <laughs> I am? Why no. does that make you sad? No. Well, you're also never – I'm a blogger, so you're never going to be able to dissuade me from refreshing Twitter constantly. So that's also okay. <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess this is just life – this is life and restricted free agency, and yeah. we just haven't had to deal with it much around here lately. But, I mean, it's it's gone on in other places, including uh, a client repped by Rich Paul, Tristan yep. Thompson, and also Eric Bledsoe. Eric Bledsoe signed right before camp started. And then Paul uh, Paul took Tristan Thompson. I mean, that obviously till the end of the to the eve of the season, till the till the end of the preseason, and four or five days away, I think, from the start of the year. But this is going on. Look, this this same scenario 
you know, with, with whatever individual differences might exist franchise to franchise. But this whole thing is playing out in Denver with Miles Plumley. Yep. Or, I'm sorry, Mason Plumley. Yeah, the other one. Uh, and it's and it's uh, uh, playing out what in Phoenix with Alex Lynn and in Memphis with Jamichael Green. So this is this is the uh, you know the the challenges of restricted free agency. It's it's a you know the team obviously doesn't want to cave and bid against themselves, but the player acquisition market is such a unique thing in the NBA, and there's so many limited times when you can acquire players. That I mean, on you know, you've got to make a fair offer. You can't just sit there. I'm not going to bid against myself because right. you know you've got to pay the guy something. Uh, but then the player is kind of stuck in this place of you know uh, he can't go out and test what his true market value is because there's this artificial inhibitor to his market value being the the ability of another team to match. And and now in his case, all the money's gone right. in terms of cap. So so yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough dance for the team and it's a tough dance for the player. And like I said, I don't think we're going to get to a resolution on this until we get a deadline. That's going to, you know, spur everybody to action. And we're obviously still over a month away from that, but it will happen. We'll get there and uh, we'll get some more locked on maps with Mark follow. Thanks so much. All right. See you, Nick. <laughs> 